So then, approaching 12.20, and uh, we can continue on again because uh, really this is an outbreak that's going to continue to draw huge levels of attention around the world. Here in Korea, we have seen a slowdown. It looked like it was going to remain at 28. We saw that creep up to 29 infections as of this morning. But what about... For example, places like India uh, and and the huge crowded populations of places that might not have as many testing kits available, might not has, have as many abilities to screen people going forward. Um, is it really going to fade in a hurry there? Professor Stanley Perlman is from the Department of Microbiology at the University of Iowa, but is in India at the moment. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. And I should also point out that you've been studying the family of coronaviruses for the last 38 years. Um, Where you currently are based in India, there have actually been only three confirmed cases of COVID-19. Is that number accurate, would you say, or or do you suspect it would be much higher if we were able to test bigger portions of the population? Yeah, that's, I think, a really difficult question to answer because what we're learning now about this infection is that probably the majority and even maybe the vast majority of uh, people who are infected have a disease that more resembles a cold or an upper respiratory tract infection than a serious pneumonia. The estimate, the numbers are not really known, but it could be up to uh, 80% or like that. So in a country like India where the resources are not great, it's unlikely that people who are like that, unless they have a contact with Wuhan, are going to be tested. So there could be an underestimate, but we really don't know. The the fear is that if this was to spread through countries that don't have the medical facilities that, say, South Korea has, that that we might see not only COVID-19 claim more lives, but also spread many more people and have a, a more long-term impact. What, what's your view on the future of COVID-19? Yeah, I think that's also a really good question because I think there's two possibilities. The one is that it will be contained this year and will never be much of a big deal. But the, the fact that it seems to spread so readily from human to human makes that less likely. So the question to my in my mind is whether... We'll see this spread this year. So there's three cases in India and uh, a limited number in Korea. Uh, But does that mean that next year that the virus will have spread to people who are not really very symptomatic, who just have mild infection, and then next year we'll see a bigger outbreak? That sometimes occurs. So I don't think we're out of the woods here with this virus. But I don't know if it'll be this year or next year. I don't know if the summer which is coming on in the northern hemisphere, is going to make the virus uh, less able to spread, which seems to happen with other respiratory viral infections. So these are all questions that are the answers range from uh, the virus won't be around much longer to it will become just like a flu virus and be around all the time. Well, hopefully before too long, we'll be getting more serious about vaccines uh, in that discussion. Uh, And... Being an expert in this area, I, I don't need to tell you that uh, there had been these questions about SARS and MERS, whether it was worth developing vaccines. Um, COVID-19, are you confident that, say, a year from now, we will have a vaccine? Yes. So this is a, 
Another issue that I think people are working very intensively on, I think that we have several vaccines in the pipelines, different companies, different universities, and they can be tested fairly readily. The parts that we haven't done well yet, though, is we don't really know what a vaccine needs to do. There's several parts of the immune response that are important in preventing uh, infection again if you see a virus after a vaccination. And we're not quite sure what they are for coronaviruses. We have an idea. And the vaccines that we're developing don't necessarily induce all parts of the immune response so that we will get good good, get immune responses in the short term, which is easier than in the long term, which may be more important if this virus is going to hang around for a while. There's this elderly couple as well who've been on a cruise ship and finally managed to uh, dock in Cambodia or off Cambodia. And the um, situation there is curious because it's a woman who's tested positive uh, for the COVID-19 virus, but her husband was showing symptoms but tested negative. Do you think that's a false negative? Is that is that just too coincidental for you, or is it possible? I would agree with you. I think that, or the implication of your statement, it sounds very coincidental. I would think it's equally likely that he had a not very high virus load. His virus load was low. And so the test was negative. The, way, the only way you can really prove or disprove that is either continue taking tests, if, especially if he's getting continuing to be ill, or had hoped that you had done the testing earlier. But we know from other respiratory viral infections, the milder they are, the more likely it is that the positivity that you'll detect will be there only for a limited amount of time. So you could have virus, and the virus can mostly disappear, and you could start having symptoms, and then that'll disappear. Interesting. Um, Speaking of the United States, though, your home, what would you say the response has been like? With the cases being at 15 confirmed, it it could be a lot higher than that, given the the size of the U.S. population, obviously. Uh, And and the country doesn't seem to have been panicking nearly as much as some of our neighbours here in Asia. Perhaps part of that is uh, due to more recent experiences with things like MERS here in Korea and obviously SARS, memories are still strong for many people. But then again, the U.S. did have a very tough experience with H1N1. How would you gauge the U.S. response? Well, I think because the cases, the number of confirmed cases is so low, I think that's the reason that people are not panicking. But what I can tell you is that there's an enormous amount of interest in this virus in the United States I I am only one of several coronavirus uh, people, and I get uh, calls and emails all the time from people who are worried and from radio stations and television stations. So there's a lot of interest, but I think that because there's only 16 cases, people think right now it's distant from their personal lives. A final question. We have around a minute here, but it's an intriguing one that you've suggested men are more vulnerable to coronavirus infection than women. Why is that? Um, yeah, so that seems to be a consistent pattern, especially in this in this uh, latest outbreak with this uh, new coronavirus. I think that you, what we saw before is occurring again. Initially, it seems like men are more predominant, and then it sort of evens off, but still with a male predominance. And from our studies in, in, in experimental animals like mice, we know that that's, this uh, gender difference or sex difference is even more exaggerated in mice. And we think maybe it has to do with um, 
um, female hormones like estrogen and progesterone being somewhat protective. We know there's differences in the way men and women respond to infections, and this could be a reflection of that. Women tend to respond more vigorously, and maybe that's important in this particular infection. Very interesting area of study, that. Professor Perlman, thank you also for joining us from India today. Oh, my pleasure. You're very welcome. We'll continue this afternoon's special show after your hourly bulletin.